Well, Matthew 2 was read to us, and it is the story, of course, of the Magi. And this story is central to the epiphany narrative in the scripture. The Magi are the very first visitors from other nations who come to see Jesus. The first foreigners to whom Jesus is revealed. So how do the Magi get from somewhere in the east to arriving in Bethlehem and falling in worship at the feet of Jesus? This is an important question because it can serve to help us to understand how any person or any group of people could move a great distance from never having seen the meaning and essential nature of Jesus to falling at his feet in worship. So in our time today, I'd like us to consider three themes that are interrelated with this Magi narrative. First, how the Magi are brought to see the meaning and essential nature of Jesus, how we could bring others to see the meaning and essential nature of Jesus, and why it is so important for us who already know Jesus and have seen him to continually see new aspects of the beauty of Jesus Christ. So let's begin with this journey that we heard about in the Matthew 2 reading. You may have noticed that the narrative describing the visit of the Magi is filled with mystery, intrigue, and happenings in the celestial realm. But who were these Magi who were taking this trip? Well, they're simply described as a Magi from the East in the text. And the Magi are often referred to in Christmas songs, which we've probably recently been singing, or Christmas stories as three kings or three wise men. Perhaps a better way to understand the Greek word magos from which we get our translation wise men or magi in the English text is in fact to understand how the Chaldeans, the Medes, and the Persians from whom this word is derived would have understood the magi. Magi is a term that could refer to wise men, to astrologers, to music, musicians, maybe, magicians, to physicians, to interpreters and seers. And all of these were found in the royal courts of those ancient cultures. In Chaldean or Babylonian culture, we're probably familiar with someone that the Chaldeans would have considered a very powerful magi, Daniel. He was in the courts of Babylon, specifically Nebuchadnezzar, and was an interpreter of dreams. While we meet the Magi in the Matthew 2 text when they've already arrived in Jerusalem, the capital city of the Jewish people. So let's review together six elements of their journey from the east to the feet of Jesus. And first, of course, we are introduced to a divine strategist. God has been working behind the scenes to orchestrate every detail in this journey. From a new star in the sky, to a visit with Herod, to the reading of the Micah text, to the movement of the star over Bethlehem. Not only do we have this divine strategist at work who is God, but we also have him giving a contextualized sign to the men from the east. By sign, I mean something that points towards something else, something that is not pointing to itself. A sign points away from the thing that is seen to a thing that is unseen. In this case, God puts a star in the sky as a sign for the Magi. But the star is not to be the point of their focus. What it points to is the focus. 
And by a contextualized sign, what I mean is that in this context, God prepared a sign for a specific group of individuals, a particular people. You know, this is sent to astrologers and seers. Of course, it's a star in the sky, we say now. But how contextually beautiful that God sends a star to astrologers who are always looking at the stars to find unseen meanings. The sign of this star set expectations in the hearts of the Magi. It connects with their deepest longings and hopes to find God in the mystery beyond themselves. Not only that, but we also see in the text that there is a journey. The Magi will need to go from where they are to where Jesus is. And they will travel a very long distance to get to Jesus. Whenever a person has not yet seen the meaning and essential nature of Jesus, a journey is required from where they stand in unbelief to where they will come to belief. From where they stand unaffected by the reality of Jesus to a place of awe and wonder. And not only is a journey required, but a relationship in that journey will also be needed. And it's a very strange relationship in this case because the Magi meet Herod. And despite his evil motives and his personal power plays, it is Herod who makes the connection between the Magi and the priests and teachers of the law who will actually direct the wise man's journey and send the Magi where they are meant to go. The hands of relationship are always required whenever a person is brought to see Jesus. Then there's the word of the Lord. When people are brought to see Jesus, along the way they need to encounter the word of the Lord. In this case, the ancient Jewish scriptures point the way to Jesus. The prophet Micah is read, and we heard that in the text, and the teachers of the law explain to Herod and the Magi exactly where Jesus can be found. And this is what the word of God serves to do. It serves to show us who Jesus is. It serves to show us exactly where Jesus can be found. And so without the word of God, the Magi could not have come to the feet of Jesus. And then last but not least, a sixth element is required, and that is an epiphany. And here I'm playing a little bit with words. In fulfillment of the expectation set by the star and the words of the ancient text, when the Magi see Jesus, they have an epiphany moment. And although we are in the season of epiphany in the Christian calendar and there's a sacred sense to that word, you and I are both familiar with it in the general language that we use day to day, the mundane language. When we say we have an epiphany, it's because we are enlightened to see the deeper meaning of something. In biblical terms, whenever we are enlightened to see more of Jesus, we know the Holy Spirit has been at work and he has opened the eyes of our hearts so that we can see something that a physical reality is pointing to, that a sign is directing our attention to. The sign directed the Magi to Jesus, and now the word of God tells them where to go through hands of relationship, and the Magi will show up there, and the word of God will allow them to be in exactly the right part of the world, not in the east, but before Jesus, when the Holy Spirit will open their eyes. And you know, when they come to see Jesus, they don't see simply an infant. They see a king. They fall down and their faces and worship, and they offer him costly gifts. 
And this whole journey to Jesus is so clearly orchestrated by God. He prepared the hearts of the Magi. He had put the star in the sky. He had shown them the scriptures. And in their journeys, he had kept them safe. So they landed in Bethlehem right at the time when they needed to see Jesus and when Jesus would be present. And so there's these six elements that we can see in the journey of the Magi. We see the divine strategist. We see that he places a sign that they will be able to understand and follow. We see that he puts a journey between them and where they're going to get to. There's different things they're going to have to go through to get through that journey to Jesus. He also sends a relationship. He sends us an understanding of the word of God and the Holy Spirit opens our eyes. These are six elements in the journey of the Magi. But I'm going to suggest that this is a pattern consistently repeated in the scripture. These same six elements often arise in the biblical narratives of people who are coming to see Jesus and they have much to offer us in understanding what is necessary in order for us to come to Jesus. Think of the Ethiopian eunuch who many of you are probably familiar with. He was introduced to us in Acts 8 and he is another foreigner who comes to see Jesus. He's a foreign visitor who traveled all the way from Ethiopia, over 500 miles in an open chariot, to discover Jesus through the writings of an Isaiah scroll and the help of Philip the Evangelist. He is well-educated and he's a trained eunuch from the royal court in Ethiopia. He would have found himself excluded from most company in Israel, but he journeyed to this foreign land. A eunuch was considered a valuable asset in the royal court from which he came because he would not be involved in the intrigues that related to making alliances through marriage. He wouldn't take advantage of young royal female personages and he wouldn't seek to build a kingdom for his offspring. If the Ethiopian eunuch came from royal blood, then he probably became a eunuch because of a birth defect or injury. But very often, if a eunuch was a commoner, then he would have agreed to have his body mutilated so he could have a high position and a lot of wealth. In any case, we know the Ethiopian eunuch is unable to have family, a heritage, or descendants. And so he's asking some very significant existential questions as he journeys to Jerusalem. He's inquiring into the faith of the Israelites, and he was willing to journey far to find intellectually satisfying answers to his meaning questions. Well, let's look briefly at the six elements that he also finds in his journey. Because, of course, again, there's a divine strategist, and God's been working behind the scenes to orchestrate every detail so that the Ethiopian eunuch will encounter the living Christ. He uses his servant Philip in remarkable ways, whisking him from one place on the globe to another in order to meet the needs of people who are going to be brought to Jesus. And then there's that contextualized sign that makes sense not only of who God is, but of what he wants to say to the eunuch. Because God provides a scroll containing the book or a portion of the book of Isaiah to this educated and elite member of the Ethiopian royal palace. And it leads him to inquire. In the Acts 8 passage, he says, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? As he's reading the Isaiah text in 53, one of the suffering servant songs, he's wondering what's going on here. 
And of course, this is perfectly contextualized for a well-educated person to be reading a, a very significant text in another language, but it's also very contextualized, the passage and the scroll that God gives him, because in this case, the scroll is talking about suffering, and it is a eunuch who is reading it. And as we know, eunuchs were forbidden from entering the temple or the assembly of the Lord. So he didn't have a Deuteronomy scroll that in chapter 23 would have showed him that. So he has traveled all the way from Ethiopia to come and try and worship the God of the Israelites. And when he gets here, he would have been turned away. Because eunuchs are forbidden from entering the temple or the assembly of the Lord. And so sadly, he's on his way home. He has experienced exclusion, marginalization, even as he was seeking to worship God. And he would have been made to feel possibly very unclean and unworthy. He doesn't fit in in his own society, and when he comes to find God, he discovers he does not fit in there. Longing, expectation has been built in the text because in the text, he reads of a sufferer. And he wonders how this sufferer might relate to his own personal experience. Well, there's not only this sign that is within the text, but there's also the journey. And of course, we've talked about the fact that the eunuch has had to come a long way to worship Jesus. And he's not only had to come a long way geographically, but he's also had to experience all of this um, marginalization as he's come. And I wonder how he's feeling and where he's at and what he's thinking about when suddenly Philip pops up because he also needed a relationship. And here's Philip. Imagine both Philip's surprise and the Ethiopian eunuch's surprise because Philip catches up with the chariot and hears an Ethiopian reading aloud Isaiah chapter 53, verses seven to eight. And so Philip gets invited into the chariot and through discourse, he brings the Ethiopian eunuch closer to Jesus because he opens up the gospel. Again, I want to emphasize that the gospel is always transferred through the hands of relationship. And always as well, there's this fifth aspect when we want to see people move from unbelief to belief. When we want to see people on a journey towards Jesus, we must have a word of the Lord encounter. Philip the evangelist begins with the scripture and preaches the good news that explains the meaning and essential nature of Jesus. It says, he begins with the text and then tells him all about Jesus. And then finally, of course, an epiphany is needed. In fulfillment of the expectation set by the ancient text, worship in Jerusalem, and the sudden appearance of Philip to guide him, the eunuch experiences epiphany. And through the revelation of the Holy Spirit, he sees the deep meaning of Jesus as related to the historical text, and he responds immediately and wants to be identified with this Jesus. And I wonder if the suffering text was the beginning of that identification. He wants to be identified with Jesus through baptism. And so he's immediately baptized. I want to look at one other person in scripture because these two individuals, well, these two groups, the Magi and then the Ethiopian eunuch, are on a quest to see Jesus. They're actually seeking Jesus. But there are people in the scripture who are not seeking Jesus at all. And specifically, I would say this about the man born blind in John chapter 9. He has similar elements in his journey, but he is not out looking for Jesus. 
And Jesus and his disciples come upon him begging at the side of the road. He's not trying to find Jesus at all. Many of the other beggars or blind people that we discover in scripture are calling out, Jesus, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. This man is sitting quietly in what is probably his usual spot with a few of the things that he needs beside him and just waiting for people to drop him a few denarii as he waits. This man is not on a journey in his mind anywhere. We know that this man is without hope because in John 9, when he describes himself, he says, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. So he's not trying to find Jesus. He's not asking for help because he is without hope. But this does not mean that God was not seeking him. This does not mean that the same elements of the journey are not also in his life. Because God is the divine strategist in his life and he is orchestrating every detail so that the blind man's journey will reach a nexus with the uh, presence of Jesus passing by. I always love the text in scripture when Jesus is passing by. Um, They turn people's worlds upside down. And secondly, he's going to receive a contextualized sign as well. Jesus responds to the blindness of the man in a very personal way by healing him. He sees the suffering of this despised and marginalized place that the man holds in community, and he decides to heal him. Now, for many of us, we would think, oh, okay, well, now that he's healed, that's amazing. That's what the man needed. And I want to say to you, no, he did not primarily need this healing. This healing is a sign of that which he truly needed. The healing is simply to point the blind man to his need for a savior. And this text could not be more clear. Because as we look at the blind man, we see that after he receives this healing, he goes on this journey. And this journey is to the pool of Siloam where he's ultimately physically healed. But then as he comes back, his neighbors don't believe him and can't even hardly recognize him. They say, are you really the blind man? which tells you how much marginalization and estrangement he'd been suffering. His parents disavow him for fear of the uh, leaders and religious authorities, and the religious authorities cast him out. And so at the end of the story, even though the longing of his heart to see was what he thought he needed, he is more of an outcast than before the story began. Because the sign is not what we need. We need to see Jesus Christ We need to encounter the Savior, and every time there is a sign of Jesus, it is to point us to Jesus. It is not our answer. So he goes on this journey, and then he needs a relationship. And the beauty of the story of the blind man is that he doesn't have a relationship with an evangelist. He doesn't, well, he does. Jesus is the ultimate evangelist. Um, He has Jesus Christ intervene in his life, and Jesus comes to personally see him. He sees him first when he's cast out and when he's nothing more than a theological question to the disciples. When they see the blind man, they say, well, whose fault is it that he's here in the first place? And Jesus just says, no, (laughs) this is so that the works of my father may be seen. And then again, he becomes a theological question for the Jews and gets cast out again. And Jesus comes and Jesus finds him. And it says in the text, when Jesus heard he'd been cast out, Jesus comes And the coming of Jesus and the relationship tells this man that he is meaningful, he has value in the sight of God, and that Jesus wants more than just the sign to be accomplished. He wants the consummation where the man sees through the sign to Jesus himself. 
And so there's a word of the Lord encounter, and the word of the Lord comes directly from Jesus. And he says to the man, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man says, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus replies in this beautiful statement, you have seen him. You have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. Why could this man see him physically? Because of the sign. And Jesus makes this nuanced connection between the sign that the man could see him, but the need for the man to ultimately see the Son of Man, who is Jesus Christ incarnate, God. And here the man looks upon Jesus. He sees him. He sees his essential nature, and he worships him. And so he has, yes, an epiphany. You know, the man had been asked by the religious authorities, who is Jesus? He had begun by saying, well, I think he's a, 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 a prophet. He's a man who is from God. Uh, the other thing that he thought about Jesus when he was interrogated was that he was a healer, obviously. But he had never seen the true meaning of Jesus. And when we encounter people, or perhaps you yourself think, well, Jesus is a great model. He came to this earth to model how to do good works and justice. And that is a limited understanding of the nature of Jesus Christ. He is not simply a Christ figure. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And it is not enough to think of him as a prophet who brings words from above. Because that is indeed who he is. He is the incarnate word of God. He is the ultimate prophet. But if we only see the words of God and we do not see the face of Jesus such that we are thrown to our feet in worship and awe, then we have yet to meet the risen Lord. And many of us sit and read the text and never see the Savior. And we must cry out for an epiphany, for the enlightenment that comes from the Holy Spirit, so that the words come alive and Jesus is before us in the words of the text. The tool that God uses to bring the journey of the blind man to final consummation is actually the presence of his son. And so in each of these stories, we see that Jesus is made manifest in very different ways. But the same elements are present. And I think it's interesting that the Magi, the Ethiopian eunuch, and the man born blind are written into the biblical text but without any personal names. And I've asked myself, why don't they have names? <laughs> Might this be because it's not just a narrative of an individual journey, but in fact they are representative of different and diverse ways that people come to see the meaning and essential beauty of Jesus Christ. Also, each of them needs a sign that is different, a sign that is particular to them. So we have the sign of the star for astrologists and seers. We have the sign of an interesting text for an intellectual and educated man. And we have the sign of healing for the man born blind. Each needed a different sign and each needs a different kind of messenger. One needed an evangelist, one needed the men who could interpret the text, and one needed the very Son of God. The point is, however, that every one of them ends up at the feet of Jesus. And it's interesting that there's no particular text that they need to hear. Micah is heard by the Magi, Isaiah is read by the Ethiopian, and Jesus gives fresh words to the man born blind. Also, it's very important to note that each must make a very difficult and arduous journey. 
The Magi from the East are bearing gifts, and it's very, very courageous of them to move forward because, of course, the Magi bearing gifts are traveling on roads that are uh, often filled with robbers and thieves, and yet they bring these costly gifts and journey beyond and past and forward towards Jesus. The Ethiopian eunuch is in some open uh, chariot, possibly bumping over roads uh, from 600 years before roads were probably beginning. I'm not sure if the Roman road was in place. Perhaps it is, but it's probably a pretty bumpy affair. And then also you think about the blind man and he's got quite an emotional journey to go through. But each is granted also a moment of enlightenment. And so I want to say that no matter the starting point of the journey for each of them or each of us, they do encounter the meaning of Jesus because God designs it and the Holy Spirit makes it happen. But what is this essential nature of Jesus Christ that I'm talking about? Well, Colossians 1 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The essential nature of Jesus Christ is that he is the Son of God. But he's also the Son of God who is love. And so when people encounter the essential nature of Jesus, they encounter the Jesus who is the Son of God and whose very nature is love. In Ephesians 3, Paul prays that the Ephesian congregation would come to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that they might be filled with all the fullness of God. John says that God is love, and this is his essence. This is at the core of his being. It is not an attribute. God is love. In Ephesians 3, Paul says that we are rooted and grounded in love in verse 17. And this means that from the time we come to Christ, we are planted in love, and our growth as a believer happens as we grow out of that rooting and that grounding in love. The primary meaning of Jesus is that he comes to show us the love of God in person. In this was the love of God demonstrated, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So whenever we see the essential nature of Jesus, we will always be encountering an aspect of love. And aspects of love, by the way, involve truth, judgment, righteousness, goodness, holiness. All of these are centered in the essential nature of who God is. And love does not come to us without all these attributes present. And this means that every single sign that was received from the divine strategist represented love. To the Magi, the star was a message of love. To the Ethiopian eunuch, the Isaiah text was a message of love. And to the blind man, the healing was a message in lo of love. So this brings me to the second theme of our message. How might we bring others to see the essential nature of Jesus Christ? Well, as we've considered the elements of these three journeys, we began to understand how God works, how human agency works, and how responsive faith works. It is God who orchestrates the journey. It is the human person who must respond to the stirrings that are prompted by the sign. It is God who gives the means of enlightenment. It is a person who responds by faith. The meaning of Jesus is ultimately something that people respond to in worship, but along the journey, there's at least three things that you and I can do. We can become a sign, we can build a relationship, and we can preach the word of God. So let's briefly consider these. Becoming a sign. 
Jesus continually uses contextualized signs in his ministry to point people to the meaning of who he is and his essential nature. And each sign is designed for a specific context. The first 12 chapters of John are actually commonly called the book of signs. And in John chapter 2, Jesus says, this is, it says these are the beginning of the signs of Jesus. The wine in Cana was the first of his signs. And there were seven signs recorded in the beginning of John. And John tells us why he writes about these signs. Because in John 20, 30, he says that he wrote all about this. So we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and have life. So this means that when there are signs in your life that point you to Jesus, no matter the nature of that sign, that those signs come from the heart of God, the heart of love, and they are meant to give you life. And the signs that we see in the beginning of John are, of course, Jesus turning water into wine. And why does he do this? To remove the shame that comes from people who used poor management in planning a wedding. And this is contextualized simply for a bridegroom. Then there's God healing, Jesus healing the blind man, and this is one of his signs. And why does this happen? Well, primarily it happens as a sign not to the blind man, although it is his sign. It's a sign to the disciples of who Jesus is, and it's a sign to the Pharisees because they refuse to accept the sign. Then Jesus heals sickness and physical disability to bring comfort and hope in John 4 and 5. And this is a sign to the crowds who see all of this. Also, we see John 6, where Jesus feeds the 5,000, and we may think, well, this is primarily a sign for the 5,000, and certainly they would have seen Jesus, but actually, according to Mark 6, we know that this sign was meant for the disciples to know that they need not fear, that their trust could be in God, that he would provide, and it says that they didn't get the sign of the low, so he gave them another sign. He came out and walked on the water, and Mark makes it clear he wouldn't have had to walk on the water if the disciples had gotten it in the first place. So the sign of walking on the water was again for his disciples. Do you see how each of these signs comes to them so they will see the God of love, the God of power, the God of might, the God who can care for them, and therefore they have confidence in who he is and what they are being called to do. And of course, finally, there's the raising of the dead in John 11, and I think this is contextualized out of kindness and love first and foremost for Lazarus, for Martha, and for Mary, but ultimately so that we know who is the ruler over life and death. So these seven signs help us to get insight into what matters to God. Many of the signs were for his disciples so they could discover the essential nature of Jesus. So what does this have to do with you and I? Well, signs are often the first thing that people see. Signs fire the imagination to ask questions. We've been living with some Afghan refugees out at Hope House and having probably, when I'm there, three or four spiritual conversations a day that I don't start. And they will come to me and they will ask me questions. They will say things to me like, we're fasting today, do you ever fast? They want to know about my fasting routines. They'll come to me and say, when we take them to see where they might get a job, why do you put all your elders in seniors' homes? We do not understand this. Why are you doing this? And we will have to answer what we've been doing. As they look into our lives, our life becomes a very sign in who we are and what we do to our Afghan neighbors. They're watching closely. They want to know. They want to know when I have my prayer times. And certainly, they let me know when they have their prayer times. 
And so these things that we do in our lives become signs for those who are watching and they can put a sliver in their brain and they can make them start to ask what's going on here. For the wise men, it was something that captured their imagination. It was something that moved them to action and it was something that sent them on a journey towards Jesus. Signs are what people see and it can fire the imagination to ask questions. I know many of our new neighbors have said, why are you doing this? Why do you take care of us? And this is a very important question. And the answer, of course, is because Park Street Church is a servant of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ loves the nations. It's a simple answer from a very simple sign. <clears throat> As we understand that we are signs in a dark world, lights in the darkness, it should fill our hearts with a sense of meaning and purpose. Because what we are suffering, what we are struggling through, what we are reading, what we are doing in small acts of kindness, what we are painting, what we are creating in our vocation can serve as a sign of the love of God that will ultimately point a person to the meaning of Jesus. A person may have a long journey from the time they encounter you and what you're doing to Jesus, but along the way, your role is to simply be a sign to point people to Jesus. As we radically stoop down to make others great, getting our hands dirty right up to the elbows in the messy places of life, we say that people matter. They matter to God. And he has sent a sign, not as an end, but as a means to move people to Jesus. Then the next thing we can do is we can build a relationship. I've always been shocked by the fact from the first time I noticed the eunuch reading the scriptures, I was thinking, well, he has the scriptures, He's in a whole text about the cross. But even with an Isaiah scroll in his lap, he needed a messenger. He needed a relationship to accompany that. And this is what we see throughout the text. We always see messengers accompanying the message. Romans says, how will they hear without a preacher? Relationships are necessary. Jesus journeyed with people, and along the way, he proclaimed the good news to them. Paul always considered that if he was going to bring people to Jesus, it was going to be about relationship and the gospel. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our own lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. The priority of relationship as we bring people to Jesus is so important because the relationship itself points to the essential nature of who Jesus is. How can we share the meaning and essential nature of Jesus, who is the triune God with others, if we ourselves choose radical individualism? How can we share the meaning of the essential nature of Jesus, who is friend of sinners, if we're never friends with sinners? Meaning just anyone on the streets or in our office. If we do not think that friendship is the central of this central point of this journey for each of these people, there's a relationship, then we will simply lose the opportunity to take the signs of our life and see them sewn into lives. When we don't have friendships, we're not talking about our sufferings. We're not talking about our sorrows. We're not talking about our joys. We're not talking about the gifts God gives us. And all of these are signs of the love of God that brings life. So we want to be in relationships. It's very important as well to understand that although radical individualism is quite a difficult thing for those of us in the West, it is also related to how we do nuclear family. When the family is primarily simply an extension of the self, then we can become radically individual as a family. 
and stand apart from others because we can't find a lot of sufficiency within the safe enclave that is shaped just like us, family. We don't need to put our lives, uh, we don't need to open our lives to others. We can remain insular. We can remain cut off. To radiate the love of God, we need to invite others into the nooks and crannies of our lives because to love is to be like God. And of any story where we know what love looks like other than the cross, it's the Christmas story. Jesus came to us in likeness of human flesh so that he could know us and became exactly like us except without sin. So to love is to be like God. And especially to love through forgiveness and through sorrow and through injury and wounds. Remember, we are meant to be the hands of relationship that bring people to the presence of Jesus. And then finally, we need to preach the gospel. Some people say, preach the gospel and if necessary with words. I do not see in the biblical text a place where words are not necessary. And the fact that Jesus Christ is called the word of God means that words, the word of God, is very necessary. Philip preaches the good news of Jesus to the Ethiopian eunuch, and it is significant to consider his process. It says in Acts 8, Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him, the Ethiopian eunuch, the good news about Jesus. When Philip is meeting the eunuch, no New Testament letters have been let, written. There's no gospels, there's no epistles. So he gives a spoken testimony of the good news of Jesus, and I'm going to suggest that it just pours out of him. Philip has just been caught up in the Spirit and moved around. Philip has been under the direct guidance of the Holy Spirit. It is not going to be hard for him to tell the story of Jesus. He is living the story of Jesus. He is functionally embodying the story of Jesus. He is going around giving the great news of how Jesus has changed his life and of what he knows of Jesus. And that is what giving the good news is about we can't give the good news if we are in a stale relationship with God. We can't give the good news if the resurrection of Jesus Christ didn't change me yesterday. We're just living on remembered grace and a grace that is no longer functional in our lives. And so therefore, it is very significant that we who preach the gospel realize that the gospel must be something that is lived in us, breathed out of us. It comes out of us because it's been poured into us by the time that we have spent with Jesus. And this brings me to my third theme, which is as believers, we need to continually see Jesus. We need to continually see Jesus. If we are not continually seeing Jesus, how can we bring other people to see Jesus? Why would we want them to see Jesus if the longing of our heart is not to see Jesus? Without continual revelation from the Holy Spirit in my life, I become someone who is dry and dead. My character starts to disintegrate. I become an ugly, nasty person. And I want to acknowledge that it's only the Holy Spirit's fruit in my life that makes me worth being around for a minute. And I suspect for some of you, maybe, it's the same. We need the Holy Spirit, and we need to be in the presence of God, seeking his enlightenment. 
1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him as he is. How are we changed? How are we transformed? The more we see of Jesus, the more we're changed. This is for sure affirmed in 2 Corinthians 3. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Our transformation into people who become bright shining stars, signs to this culture, is absolutely dependent on our time in the Word of God and our dependence on the Holy Spirit. And that is what we are called to. If people are going to make a journey from unbelief to belief, that long arduous journey, if they are going to make that movement, they have to see something that excites them, that begins to stir their imagination and makes them ask questions. And most of the time, that's going to be a virtuous life, a loving life, a holy life, a called life, a redeemed life, an obedient life. You know, in the era of Moses, the people did not want to hear from God, except by a distant voice. They said, Moses, you go up there and you receive the message from God. It's too much for us. It's too much for us. And so a generation continued in the wilderness who did not see or hear God because they found him too scary and they died in the wilderness due to unbelief. We need to be a people who are not just hearing the word of God. We need to be a people who are seeing Jesus through the word, through prayer. I wonder today, is your relationship marked by hearing with the ear or seeing with the eye? Do you know about Jesus or do you know Jesus? This is the question. Uh, when was the last time that you had the eyes of your heart enlightened? And as you were reading scripture or as you were being uh, engaged in conversation, Jesus came alive to you and you saw a new way that his essential nature mattered. These are questions that we need to ask if we are going to actually celebrate the season of Epiphany when the gospel goes out to the nations. Because in Boston, in the year 2022, we are the signs that God is giving to this nation, to this city, to your neighborhood. And those signs need to be longing to be in the presence of Jesus. Those signs need to be adoring Jesus. And those signs need to be like the wise men or the magi who made a journey to the foot of Jesus and when they got there, they worshiped and they gave everything they brought to Jesus. And so today, as we consider Epiphany, I want to remind you that you yourself need to continue to journey towards Jesus. It's going to take the hands of relationship. So who are the relationships that hand you closer to Jesus? It's going to take the word of the Lord. So how are you immersing yourself in the word of the Lord? It's going to take seeing the signs that God has placed in your life of love that give life and realizing they come from God. My children, my grandchildren, uh, a kind stranger on the street, a phone call, a text, these are all 
opportunities to see the love of Jesus displayed in my life. So the question for us is, are we journeying towards Jesus every day? And are we seeking to be changed and transformed by his presence? Amen.